I don't know about you, but I am so thankful for our worship team. They're doing a great job Sunday by Sunday, don't they? And uh, we are so blessed. And I don't know if you were here uh, Friday night, but uh, they really flexed their muscles Friday night. Oh my gosh, we had a great night there. And uh, and last night they were at Wingers. So if you were happen to be at Wingers last night, you saw them again. So you could see them three times this weekend. And uh, so I think they're going to need a little rest. I hope you guys get a little rest this week. And we're grateful for all your ministry among us. Um, we're in a series on Mark, and so if you want to turn to Mark chapter 7, we are working our way through uh, the book of Mark. We do this commonly here at Risen Life, where we pick a book of the Bible and just teach our way through it so that we uh, stay true to the text and uh, follow along what's, what God is saying to us. Um, many of you were here three or four weeks ago. We took a little survey of you and your spiritual journey and your walk with Christ and God and your and how you were doing, and we asked several questions uh, along the lines of our uh, purpose statement where we're trying to see transformed lives and are we connecting, growing, serving, and reaching. Uh, Pastor Robert uh, gave us an update on the connect section of the survey. I'll just give you a little update on the grow section of the survey um, this morning. Uh, 75% of you, three-quarters of you, said that you have some sort of weekly personal involvement with God through prayer and Bible study. So 75% of you said that. Uh, that was pretty great. Um, 42% of you, 42% of you said you have read through the Bible all the way from front to back. That's pretty good. I was surprised by that. That was a pretty high number. By the way, this is coming the time of year where you can get on that Bible bus, you know, and do that. It's a big commitment, um, but you can't do it unless you start it. And so uh, there, there, I've been walk, working through the Murray McShane version of reading through the Bible this year. That's been a really good one. That's one. There's several others. Just do through the Bible in a year on the internet, and you'll find six or seven options. If you want to do that, we're coming up on January. Give it a shot. Um, raise that number from 42 to something a little higher. Okay, so um, 73% of you, 73% of you said that you attend church at least three or four times a month, so regularly. So that's three quarters of us doing that, so that's great. 39% of you said you actually mentor somebody else in the faith. 39%. That, that was a really good number. And 47% of you said that you are involved in your growth in a smaller setting beyond just the worship service, like a small group or a community group or a, or a, a Bible class on Sunday morning. 47% of you are in a smaller setting uh, where you study the Bible with others in a small group. So I think those are good marks. There's always room for growth and improvement. We want to keep growing. Jesus said, just keep going and do so more and more, the Bible tells in First Thessalonians. And so we'll, we'll continue to keep growing, but uh, great numbers. I'm really thankful for all that God is doing in and through us in our growth. Now, uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the book of Mark, chapter 7. And Mark, chapter 7, provides for us um, a contrast. Now, let me step back one second. In the Gospels and in Mark, Jesus is, is, is displayed as who he says he is. The Son of God. I am the Son of God. God in human flesh. I am coming to show you through my miracles, through my life, through my perfections, through my death and resurrection, that I am the Messiah. And that's what the Gospels are trying to, to show us. And we're going to see now in this text this morning that Jesus really is, this Jesus is for all nations. He's for all peoples. And we'll see that in the contrast that's provided in this chapter because we'll look at, at a Jewish response to Jesus and then we'll look at a, a Gentile response. And the contrast between these two uh, just in terms of culturally, is enormous. It's massive. And yet, in both of these cases, the call of Jesus is the same, and that is to personal faith and trust in Him for our salvation and for our healing and for our hope of eternal life. 
And so um, in this chapter now, we're going to look at, at, at two groups of people um, that Jesus is dealing with, the Jewish people, the religious, you might call them, and the Gentile people, the irreligious, um, and kind of look at how they both respond to Jesus and his call to them. Okay, so here we go. Uh, we'll start with the Jewish people in verse 1. It says, Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed, dirty hands. Verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, from shopping, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? but eat with defiled hands, dirty hands. Okay, So there it is, there's the text, and we're dealing with the Pharisees now again, and uh, you know they get a bad rap, and they probably should at some level, Jesus surely criticized them in many ways, but it, you know the, the general direction of their life is to try to, as they understood it, honor God. And in this text, they're particularly concerned about being clean, about being pure, uh, the Pharisees were big on purity. And in fact, in the Mishnah, their oral law, their oral tradition uh, that was written down, 27% of the laws that are written there are about purity. And so the, the basic aim thrust here to try to be pure as people or how to be clean or pure as people is really a good one, except that they missed entirely what it means to be clean. That's the problem. We'll see this. They missed what it means to be pure and holy before God. But that was their aim. And so they complained to Jesus that his disciples were not following the tradition of the elders, their teachings about what it means to be pure and clean. They were not washing their hands before meals. That was a, a tradition of the elders. Now, to understand this text this morning, we have to understand a couple of things. Um, one is that there is a law written in the Bible called the Torah, the biblical law that's given to us on how we are to obey God and honor Him and follow Him. And that's at stake here in part. And those are God's rules that have been given to us in His Bible to follow, uh, fulfilled completely in Jesus in every respect. They're rules we are to follow um, as God would define them and as Jesus would define them through our lives. Okay? That's the Torah. But there also is a law that's showing itself here called the Mishnah, or in this person, it's called the tradition of the elders. And these are the Pharisees' understandings of what it means to follow the law of God. And so they had all kinds of oral traditions of how to specifically live out the commands of God, additions to the law, and they wrote them all down in the, in the Mishnah, and it's the tradition of the elders. This is not God's law. It's the Pharisees' understanding of maybe how to live out the law, but it is not God's law, okay? And those two things are being discussed here in this text. Now, Jesus points out that there are two problems with how uh, the Pharisees were defining purity and 
cleanliness, okay? And they were missing the mark in a couple of ways. There's a couple of problems. And we see this in verses uh, 6 and 7, and 8 actually. Look at it. And he said to them, well, did did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, and here's the first problem, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Okay, so the Pharisees were people that actually spoke things that seemed to honor God and maybe did things that seemed to honor God, and yet God is saying their hearts were far, far from Him. They didn't honor Him in their hearts. They didn't love Him and worship Him in their hearts. They were doing good things, but they weren't honoring God in their hearts. And that's a reminder to us that we can do all kinds of right things and say all kinds of right things and still be miles away from God. And that's what was going on here uh, in part with the the Pharisees. They believed that purity was largely based on an external keeping of the law, but they were missing the issue that it really needs to be out of our motives and our intents in our heart. Okay? There's a second problem that shows up in verse 7. It says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Okay, now in this verse we see these two types of the law. The Torah, God's law, called doctrines, and the commandments of men, which was the Mishnah. And it says that (laughs) you guys have taken your commandments of men, the Mishnah, your interpretations, and you've made them equal with the law of God. You've made them equal with the Torah. You've made them equal with God's commandments in the Scripture. The things that you think we ought to be doing that you've written out that aren't in the Bible, you've made them equal with the Bible. That's what they've done. Now, it would be a little bit like us today, I think. Um, Many of you have a Bible and you'll have the words of the Bible in it and then at the bottom of the page you'll have commentary written by people, right? Filled with errors. Sorry to disappoint you. And you take the, you, you read the Bible, but then you quickly read down what did that man say about it so that I know what it means. See? And then you take that as equal with the Bible. That's a problem, right? Those are man's words. And they're, they're helpful. They're good. We learn some things from them, but they might not be right. Hey, to tell you. In fact, one of my first Bibles I remember as a kid, I was 13 years old, and for Christmas, I got a Schofield study Bible. I don't know if you remember that. Great study Bible with lots of notes. In fact, more notes than Bible. And I read them. And I embraced them as if they were perfect. And uh, come to find out, 40, 50 years later, as a Bible teacher, that a lot of those notes, at least in my opinion today, weren't really entirely correct. All right, good notes, helpful, interesting, but not God's word, you see? And so we've got to read commentary, man's writings, differently than we read the Bible. The Bible is without error. It critiques us. Everything else that's written, we critique, okay? And there's a difference. Okay, and that's the mistake that they were making, is that they had taken man's words and man's laws and elevated it to the level of the Scriptures. Now, the point Jesus is making is that when you make these extra man-made laws or writings the focus of your life, we're going to be in real trouble. It's really going to mess us up. 
Okay? And he gives an example of how it does in verses 9 to 13. He said, And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. So there, there's God's law. That's God's word. We're to honor father and mother. That's true. That's absolute. That must be done. Verse 11. But you say, here's the oral tradition now. Here they come with their teaching. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. Okay, what's going on here? What's happening is the Pharisees had this written tradition principle called Corban. And Corban was you would take a segment of your money and you would regularly set it aside and keep it like an investment you would in America today. And then when you died, that segment of money that you had set aside would be given to the temple or to the ministry, to God. Okay? And by the way, is that a bad thing? No, that's not a bad thing. I think more of us in America who have so much wealth, many of us have so much wealth, we should give a segment of our estate to ministry. That would be a really good thing to put in our wills. It's not a bad idea, okay? But here's what the Pharisees did. They set that aside for God, and then along comes a problem with mom and dad, and they're out of money, and they can't eat, and they're not getting taken care of. And what do they say? Well... We've set aside this money for God. We can't help you, mom and dad. See the problem? Now, their oral tradition, their written principle, though it is good at one level, became as high as the scriptures, and therefore now they failed to love their mom and dad. Now we got a big problem. You can see it, right? That's the problem. Now, <clears throat> I want to think about how this applies to us, see, because it does. And we get into all kinds of troubles with this. In fact, I probably had 25 examples in my head this week that I could use, and um, it's just kind of hard to sort through even where to begin on, on, on places. But let me, let me just share a couple of them that hopefully give kind of a broader sweep that let us see this. But one of, one of them that came to mind was my father would say to me, <clears throat> and he was a godly man, and he wasn't a legalist. He was a good, Christ, solid Christian. Um, but he said, I will never, ever go to Vegas. Okay? And frankly, he probably had good reasons to never, ever go to Vegas, and I think he died having lived that one out. <laughs> he never went to Vegas. In fact, I've been to, when I came here, I'd been to 47 states, but never been to Nevada, because our family always went around it. And uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so <clears throat> he never went to Vegas. Now look it, there's all kinds of good reasons not to go to Vegas, and there's probably some people in this room that shouldn't go to Vegas. You with me? I mean, and the biblical principles now, just talking about Bible's law that we should follow, is we should never go and be drunk with wine. And you might have that happen to you in Vegas. You shouldn't ever lust, and that might happen to you in Vegas. You should never put God, I mean, put money ahead of God. You should never worship money and not God. And that might happen to you in Vegas. And so there's all kinds of real biblical principles you might break in Vegas, but 
Going to Vegas doesn't make you break them. You see, this is, the, this is the problem. And in fact, if all of us adopt my father's principle of never going to Vegas, then we will break a much bigger and real command of God, and that is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. You see the problem? And so we cannot elevate our human-made rules above the rules of God. Or we're in trouble. We'll start messing it up, you see? Several years ago, <clears throat> I was in an accountability group with a group of pastors, and, um, and we had decided amongst ourselves, we were trying to be godly men, we were seeking purity, as the Pharisees are seeking here, <clears throat> that we were going to take a little season and not watch TV. Okay? Now, that might be a really good idea. In fact, it probably wouldn't hurt all of us Americans to take a little break from TV now and then. That's probably not a bad idea in itself. But we decided as a group we were not going to watch TV for a, a little season. And, and, and it became sort of a matter of godliness and purity to us whether or not we watched it. Okay, you can see it's already starting to get a little bit too big. Um, and so uh, I remember sitting upstairs and, and uh, my wife, who had a program or two that she enjoyed watching, she would go downstairs and watch it all alone. And it really meant something to her when I would sit on the couch and watch a TV program with her. Right? In fact, it made her feel kind of loved by me that I would sit and watch. And we, we do this even to this day. Kids are out of the house. We watch some TV together and just enjoy it. And so here I was. I was keeping this command of purity that we had established in our men's group to not watch TV, but I was neglecting to love my wife while doing it. See the problem? And so whenever we raise up some principle or some rule in our lives that we are aiming to try to be more godly but we start to violate other of god's laws that are truly there and real we're in big trouble and i don't know how many times i and my family have laid down a law and laid down a rule for me or for my wife or my kids aiming at purity we're going to be a godly family we're a pastor's family after all <laughs> and did way more harm than i did good right We've got to be so, so careful. What rules are we putting on our kids? Why are we putting them on there? What are we asking of our spouse? And are we violating God's laws even as we're trying to be holy with our personal laws and fences that we might put around ourselves? See, the problem is, <clears throat> and this is what Jesus is aiming for, is that it isn't what is around us that is the issue. It isn't Vegas or TV set that's the problem. What's the problem is our heart. It's what's inside of us that's the problem. And this is what Jesus then begins to point out in verse 14. He says, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can make him unclean or dirty or defile him. But it's the things that come from out of the person, inside out, that are what make him dirty and unclean and defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside can't defile him or make him unclean or impure? Since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared, All food's clean. So foods aren't the issue. What you eat and what you don't eat is not the issue. 
Some Christians want to make that the issue today too, by the way. Verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For here's the problem from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. And all these evil things come from within and they are what make a person defiled, unclean, and impure. Okay, so the problem is our heart, right? And, and so you can stay away from every possible temptation and you can stay away from every possible influence of evil. You can lock yourself in your bedroom for crying out loud and stay in there all day long and you haven't escaped your problem <laughs> because wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> and your problem is not all the influences around you. Your problem is you. See? So, so Jesus is saying, great laws, great ideas, but you haven't addressed the problem. The problem is your heart. You need a heart transplant. You need a heart change. That's the problem. And so he gives us, I think, a little bit of a hint. And we'll come back to it again before we're done of how to solve that, what the real answer is. See, all these laws sort of just keep sin in check, but none of them root them out. We have to root it out at the heart level. We have to get inside of us. And the answer to that, I believe, at least is hinted at in verse 7, going backwards just a minute here. It says, in vain do they worship me because their heart is far from me. See, it's an issue of worship. That when we are thrilled by God and we see Him for all His beauty and all His glory, and we are captured by His love and His amazing grace and His goodness to us and His steadfast commitment to us to take us through all things. When we are, and, and when we experience His peace and His comfort and, and only what God can do on the inside, when He really gets our hearts and we love Him and worship Him, then the Bible says, when you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. Right? When you get it, when you understand my love, then you'll obey. When you worship me, then you'll be what I want you to be. Then you'll be pure and holy. And our God, he, he moves the universe. He wields the universe to invite us to himself. You know, we're in a day where uh, husbands-to-be think of large, crazy, wild ideas of how to promote, propose to their woman, right? This is the day of that. And everybody's sort of trying to outdo the other. I'm glad I'm not 22 today trying to figure this out. And um, I wasn't that creative. And so, um, but, but here is our God coming to us, right? And saying, come to me, be my bride. And I was driving into Sugar House from our, from our we, we live up just to the east of Sugar House, up the hill a little bit. We're driving into Sugar House last night and, um, and there were the mountains, and it was dusk, and there was, do you see this? Little sliver moon just coming up over the mountains. Did you see this last night? It was amazing. And look, and there's this beautiful mountain range, and the whites in this valley gets so pretty. And here's this little moon. And who hung it there? See? And, and, and why did he hang it there? To invite me to be his bride. 
Now I get, well, as a guy, that sounds a little weird, right? But, but this is the picture. <laughs> this is the picture. Sometimes it's a male metaphor, sometimes it's a female metaphor. So there's a guy, guys who got to go with this. And so, <clears throat> so here he is, our God. He, he hangs the moon, and he hangs the stars, and he makes the mountains. And then he takes and he packs himself into a man. Greatest miracle that ever happened. We celebrate it this season. Packs himself into a man so we can see him, so he can invite us to him to be his bride. That's what he does, right? That one, ladies and men, we need to take him up on. I'm yours. I give myself to you. There's a day coming. Marriage Supper of the Lamb, when it's going to be the day. Greatest wedding feast you'll have ever seen. And this is what Jesus is doing with us. And he says, if you love me, if you see how much I love you, and respond to that love, then you'll keep my commandments. Now let me say one more little thing here before I move on. Because it could easily be, be misunderstood. This idea of, of placing some rules, extra-biblical rules around ourselves can be a really good idea. In fact, probably most of us need to do that some of the time. Sometimes we just need healing. We can't be around certain things or certain peoples or we need protection for our hearts and, and we just need some distance from those temptations. That's wisdom. In fact, that's what parenting is in part. Is you, you, you pack a lot of rules around your kids when you get started to keep them safe and protected because they're not smart enough to make good decisions yet. And then you're working on getting to the heart where they love Jesus. And as they learn to love Jesus, then you take the rules away and then you just kind of watch how their heart's doing, you see? That's what we're aiming to do. And so it's a good thing to do with kids, with ourselves. But we've got to realize that those rules themselves, when they become our focus, do not really actually make us what God wants us to be or make us holy or pure in themselves. It's a transformed heart. Okay. <clears throat> Now, there's a great shift in the text away from the religious, from the Jewish, to the irreligious, and the, really the pagan. Um, <clears throat> verse 24 says, And from there he arose and went to a region of Tyre and Sidon. And so we'll put a map up here real quick um, <clears throat> to show you where Tyre is. There it is. Okay, I apologize for the size of this view in the back row. But there's the Sea of Galilee right there, Sea of Galilee, and Tyre's up here on the coast, okay? And so he goes up to the Mediterranean Sea coast, uh, north and west of, the, of Galilee, where he's been, to a region that it was known for being the most irreligious people, pagans, people that frankly lived for their own pleasure and could care less about God. They were known as the rebels, this was the bad side of town. And uh, they lived up there in Tyre. And so now Jesus goes up there. And he's, I think it's in this same chapter because I think Jesus wants to show the contrast between the religious and the irreligious. Between those that are rule keepers and those that are rule breakers. And see that they all need the same thing. And that's faith in Jesus. And so we now go up to this region and Jesus encounters this woman. Verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile. She was a Syrophoenician by birth. 
And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now listen to what Jesus says. This is one of the more stunning verses in the Gospel of Mark. It makes us scratch our heads a bit, I believe. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay? He, this poor lady comes to Jesus and said, I, will you heal my daughter? And he says, you know, uh, it's not right to not feed the children and then throw the bread to the dogs. <laughs> what? What are you doing, Jesus? You're messing your own deal up. <laughs> you're not going to get this lady to you. You're going to insult her and she's going to run away. Because in the first century, <clears throat> there was a cultural norm and the cultural norm in this region was that the Jewish people were of a high social status and the Gentile people were called dogs. So it was. And, and sometimes that wasn't complimentary. It wasn't necessarily always uncomplimentary. I mean, you, we can think of, of names that peoples might be called in our culture or in cultures around the world. It's not always an insult, but it might also be an insult. But it was what the culture called it. Okay, And that's what it was called in the first century. The Gentiles were the children of God. And, I mean, I'm sorry, the, the Israelites were the children of God. And the Gentiles were dogs. Okay? Now look at what Jesus is doing here. And you can't really see it until you start thinking about it. Because first of all, Jesus would never insult somebody. We know that. He wouldn't diminish her value. He didn't diminish anybody's value as a person. In fact, he esteems it by including a woman in this story and healing a woman and paying attention to women and including them in the story like he does. He's actually lifting them out of the horrible place they were in in the first century. But in this time, you kind of scratch your head. But what he's doing is he's using the cultural norms to leverage a discussion to make a point with her. And the point he wants to make is this, is that, yes, the culture calls you a dog. Now, can you be helped as a person who is marginalized and on the side and diminished by the culture. Can you be helped? Am I enough to help you even though you are only a dog in the culture's eyes? Not in Jesus' eyes, in the culture's eyes. You see? So he's, t- he's saying, do you have the faith? Right? Can you believe this? And look what she says. And this is the, this is the statement that shows her heart that expresses faith that actually heals her daughter. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. See? Even me, who's been marginalized, can be fed by you. Even though everybody might be ahead of me in the culture, I can be helped and I can be saved and I can be taken care of by you. That's what she's saying. I have the faith to believe that. Even as the smallest person in culture, a woman, a Gentile, a a rebel of Tyre, you are enough, Jesus. You can do this for me. And Jesus said, that faith right there saves you. You see, it is so easy for us to think in our minds, it's something about us, our geography, our ethnicity, our gender, our status and culture that makes us somehow 
more worthy to God than somebody else. And that is nonsense. Jesus is pointing out every one of us is the poorest of poor. Every one of us comes desperate, just like this woman, with no hope unless, Jesus, you can come through for me. And when we are there, then he helps us. See, we bring nothing, nothing to him but ourselves, broken and in a mess. And when we do that, Jesus saves us and he heals us. And we realize there's nothing I can do. It's all grace through personal faith in him. Then I'm healed. Then I'm made well. And I don't care who we are, from the President of the United States to the woman in this story, all of us comes the same way to Christ. And only then are we saved by him. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Now, there is one more story, another Gentile story, actually, that lets us finish up this chapter. And this adds a little more information to this picture of how we come to Jesus by faith. Look at verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through, the, through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. So now he's back to the Sea of Galilee and then into the region of the Decapolis. And, and we've talked about this. The Decapolis is in the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. Again, a very, very Gentile pagan region. It says, And they brought to him a man who was deaf and who had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears. And then after spitting on his finger, he touched his finger to his tongue. Ooh. Right? Ooh. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Now that's a bizarre story, I think. One more time. Where Jesus does the strangest thing in order to Bring healing to this man. But there's something important here. There's no word missed in the scriptures. There's a picture being portrayed here that's important. And that is that Jesus deals with us, I think, in the most personal, and may I add, uncomfortable ways in order to bring healing to our lives. This spitting on his finger and touching it to this man's tongue... Makes us go, oh, I don't know if I want that. I want to be healed, but I don't want that. Is a picture of how we are with God and the healing he needs to do in us that is so personal and so deep and so uncomfortable, we're not even sure we really even want it. You ever been there with God? Have you ever noticed about God this is what he does with us? He knows where we need to be healed. He knows where we need to be made well. And guess what he does? He goes and brings about circumstances in our lives and creates situations in our lives to raise that muck up to the surface so that he can bring healing to it. This sometimes drives me crazy about God because he knows all my buttons to push and he's so happy to push them. 
through some of you, right? And, and so, <laughs> that was a joke. And so, <laughs> but that's what he does. So that my stuff comes to the surface so that now he can bring healing to it. You see? That's what he's doing. And he, we, picture Jacob in the Old Testament wrestling with God. I mean, we wrestle that sort of jam it back down. I don't want to look at that. I don't want to see that. I don't even want to be touched there. Stay away from my tongue with your spittle, right? Jam it down. I don't want to deal with that, right? It, it's a little bit like when we feel like we're going to a doctor's office, right? And you're sitting out there and you're going, okay, what's he going to do next to me, this guy, you know, right? Where's he going to poke and prod and whatever? This is, right? And, and you kind of go, well, or, or the dentist, right? What's he going to poke at this time? What's he going to have to do this time that's going to be painful? And we go there because we want healing. It's a good thing, but it's like uncomfortable. Okay, I think that's what's going on here with, with Jesus. And by the way, this is why we want to be so gracious with people that come in here. Because this is kind of like a doctor's office at some level. Right? What are they going to do to me here today? Right? I've never been here before. What are they going to do to me when I get in here today? What are they going to talk about? Right? What, what are they going to put their finger on in my heart? Right? What sin are they going to talk to me about? Right? It's uncomfortable. But we're here because we need it. We need healing. But it's hard. And so, mercifully, God brings these things to the surface so that he can heal us and make us well and bring his grace to our situation. And in fact, that's exactly what he does with this person. And, and uh, it says in verse six, 36, then after he healed him, that Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I I want you to see that these people, when Jesus actually heals, and he does, are astonished. You ever been astonished at the healing God does in your life? I'm just astonished at where I am today and what God has done to change my heart and to make me more what he wants to be. I'm just astonished by that. And here these people are, they're astonished by the the healing that he has done. But then Jesus says, "Now, now don't go tell anybody. There we go, that's a strange statement again we see in Mark occasionally. And I think what's going on here is if you think this is what healing is all about, just making a person speak and hear that didn't, you're missing the whole point. In fact, if you go and spread this message now, we're going to get it all wrong. So don't go talk yet. You don't see it all yet. Because if you're astonished now, wait till you really understand that I am God in human flesh and I die for you. Now you'll be astonished. See, don't talk yet. Hold on. When it gets clear, now will be the time to talk. See? And in fact, this really is the key ultimately to being healed. All of these are just pictures of what God can do spiritually for us in our deepest places in our hearts in and through the cross of Christ. The day was coming when Jesus would die for our sins and he'd rise again. And it was in that cross and in that resurrection that we would really truly be healed. All this points to that. See, the cross, Ben, you can come on up. The cross says a couple of really important things. It says lots of things, but it says at least a couple of important things that we've got to grasp for, for us to get well, for us to truly be healed. 
One is, it says really how sinful we are. When you look at the cross, every one of us in this room has to look there and go, my gosh, that was needed for my forgiveness? That was needed for my salvation? Oh my gosh, things are worse than I thought they were. Right? I mean, I must be worse off than I thought I was because that looks pretty gruesome that that had to happen for me to be forgiven. And that, by the way, is a mercy. When we see in the cross our own sin, that's a mercy. Because you can't get healed until you first get a right diagnosis. You can't get right until you first see what's wrong. And so we look at the cross and we see our sin. And it is, it is hard. It's a little bit like the spittle on the tongue. It's a little bit like, oh, I don't even like to look. or I don't know what's going to happen to me. And yet, God wants us to see that we are sinful to the core so that he can heal us of that. Every week I am faced with my own sin and the sins of many of those around me that I come in contact with and I go, oh my gosh, we are sometimes so much worse than we'd ever possibly want to believe about ourselves. Right? That's the truth. That's the starting point. But it doesn't end there, see? Because in the cross we also see how much he loves us. Not only we incredibly sinful that he'd have to die for us, but he loved us so much, the Son of God, God in human flesh, was glad to die for us. And in dying for us, we are completely forgiven of everything we've ever done. In fact, all those things that we read earlier in this chapter of the evil thoughts and the adulterer and the thief and the, and the envious, and Jesus became all of those. For us, he became that, and then he paid the price for it, and then we were given the righteousness of God so that we are fully and completely loved and accepted in him by grace alone, just through faith in him. And so we stand as broken people, but fully accepted and fully loved in Christ. That's the gospel. That's the love. That's the hanging of the moon. There's Jesus saying, will you come and be my bride? Will you respond to that love that I do that for you? Will you give your life to me? That's the invitation as we look at the cross. And when we do, when we say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and fills us up, gives us a joy and a peace and a love and a strength and a freedom to be broken. I am so glad I don't have to sit here and hide from all of you all the time. I can be stupid sometimes. Maybe a lot of times, you know? I mean, it's okay. Because I'm loved and I'm accepted. And I'm forgiven. And I've got the power of God inside of me that's transforming me and changing me. And that cannot be stopped because Jesus set out to do it and he will finish it. Now I can live. That's the gospel. And my question for you this morning is, when you see that, and you see the world he created to draw you to himself, will you say yes to him? Let's pray. So let's just take a moment here, just quietly in our own hearts, and trusting that God, by his Holy Spirit again, is just speaking to each one of us this morning. And this is a chance to just respond. 
And one more time, for some of us, maybe the first time, we say, Jesus, take my life. I see your love. I receive your forgiveness. I am yours. I want to live. And you are life. My life is yours. Let's just take a moment quietly before God. Say that to him. Oh, Jesus, when we see you, everything in the world becomes small. Your love, your love is what changes us. God, thank you for loving us so much. I pray in your name, amen.